Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this IPS Northern Lecture Series by Professor Tan Tai Yong, our sixth SR Northern Fellow. Following his lecture, Prof Tan will take questions from the audience in this hall and the rooms outside. The Q&A session will be chaired by Mr. Kwa Chong Guan, Senior Fellow, S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at NTU. Today's proceedings will be recorded and shared on the IPS website and our social media pages. May I now invite Prof Tan on stage to give his lecture. Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming uh, for tonight's lecture. I, I know this is Halloween e uh, evening, and uh, for some of you, it's probably a toss-up between a Halloween party and a lecture tonight. So since you are here, I'll try to make it worth your while. Now, in my first uh, lecture, I provided an overview of Singapore's 700-year history <clears throat> and ways of framing that long history. This set the scene for what, in my view, are the enduring themes in Singapore's history over the long durée, i.e. geography, regional networks, and globalization. I will argue that these factors have continuously shaped Singapore's fate and fortunes for the past 700 years and will probably continue to have an impact on Singapore's present and future. In this lecture, I will examine how Singapore experienced the forces of globalization long before the term came into popular consciousness in the late 20th century, and that as a classical port polity and colonial port city, Singapore had a global orientation and purpose that was nourished by transnational flows and networks. Let me begin by making reference to Mr. S. Rajaratnam again. You know, those of you who were at my first lecture will know that I referred to him quite extensively. In 1972, as Minister for Foreign Affairs, he articulated a vision for Singapore as a global city, an identity that would be realized over three or four decades. According to Mr. Rajaratnam, times are changing, and there would be less and less demand for the traditional type of entrepot services Singapore had rendered for well over a century. Its role in a, as the trading city of Southeast Asia, the marketplace of the region, would become less and less important. In Mr. Rajaratnam's views, Singapore could no longer hope to sustain its economic growth by serving the needs of Southeast Asia alone. It would need to position itself as part of a supply chain of goods and services for a much larger market, that is, the whole world. There were also political and geostrategic realities that prompted Singapore to look beyond Southeast Asia. In an interview with the Time Bureau chief in 1969, then Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew expressed hopes that Southeast Asia would experience constructive development and that Singapore could act as a spark plug for the progress and development of the region. However, he warned that the region could go the other way, towards chaos and destruction, in which case he hoped Singapore could play the role of Venice when the Dark Ages descended on Europe. From the Singapore perspective, Southeast Asia had too many problems to become a bastion of stability and growth for the foreseeable future. Relations with Malaysia remained fraught following separation in 1965, and the race riots of 1969 in Kuala Lumpur was a stark reminder that the underlying tensions that had led to the parting of ways a few years earlier had not wholly subsided. While Konfrontasi had ended, Indonesia was still finding its feet, 
emerging from the throes of domestic upheavals. The war in Vietnam was entering a critical stage with uncertain outcomes, and Indochina remained at the cockpit of Cold War tensions in Southeast Asia. The formation of ASEAN in 1967 was an attempt to find political stability amidst these geostrategic challenges, but the economic possibilities in the region were not promising, and Singapore had to find a way to leapfrog the region for economic growth. What made the global city as envisioned in 1972 so different from the cities that came before it? According to Mr. Rajaratnam, a global city or an ecumenopolis would be a world-embracing city. Cities of the past, he said, in contrast, had been isolated centers of local civilization and regional empires, and somewhat parochial, with an extremely limited range of influence. Thus, while Singapore's size and links to its region would remain part of the identity, it would connect with other cities in the world and make the world its hinterland. So, um, he said, um, and I'm not going to read this again, that cities, global cities would be linked to one another. They would be linked by technology, uh, and they would shape and direct the world system, the world economic system. And Singapore <coughs> is going to be a critical part of that system. So expounding on a hopeful future, Mr. Rajaratnam asserted that the trend towards global cities would benefit Singapore. It had been assumed that an independent Singapore would be a self-contained city-state, or at most a regional city, whose fate and fortunes would depend wholly on the economic climate of the region. Instead, Singapore was now, according to him, on the cusp of realizing its potential, which extended beyond the confines of its immediate neighborhood, from the international economic system to which, as a global city, um, we belong and which will be the final arbiter of whether we prosper or decline. Expressing his confidence in the future of cities, Mr. Rajaratnam asserted that nothing short of a total collapse of world civilization can halt the takeover of the world by cities. So he's articulating his faith in cities and that Singapore was one such entity. What did this shift towards being a global city entail? First, there would need to be increased connectivity both physical and technological. According to Mr. Rajaratnam, Singapore's port was one crucial link to the world, but it was not the port alone that would turn Singapore into a global city, capable of overcoming its lack of natural resources and its small domestic market. Singapore's air traffic would have to grow tremendously if Singapore was to be closely connected to other global cities like London, Tokyo, and New York. And besides air travel, Connectivity was viewed in terms of cable and satellite communications, the international financial network, and Singapore's position as an important gold market center, and collaboration with multinational corporations. The level of connectivity that Singapore could aspire towards, thanks to technology, marked the departure from its past, where Singapore's strongest overseas links were regional. Mr. Rajaratnam was visionary in conceiving of Singapore as being linked intimately with a network of global cities, even if they were not geographically close to Singapore. But Singapore's connections with the rest of the world had long been key to its well-being. Mr. Rajaratnam and the Singapore government demonstrated confidence in a vision that had yet to fully materialize. He spoke of transformation, changing Singapore to something it was not. This is perhaps not historically 
entirely accurate. Singapore was an internationally connected port city for a long part of, his, of its history. The inspiration for that vision, in my view, perhaps lay in the past. It rested on 700 years of connections and comfort with engaging the rest of the world. This is not transformation, but continuation. This was an engagement that went deep in time. In many ways, this was a return to the past, and it is that history and broader context that I shall now examine. Let me talk about globalization, since this appeared in my uh, title. The term globalization became popular in the 1990s as the preferred explanation for the multiplicity of the supranational forces that have imprinted themselves on the contemporary world. A large and illuminating literature on the economics, politics, and sociology of the phenomenon now lies readily at hand. Historians have shown how globalization has evolved and taken many forms in history, in stages that have been categorized as archaic, proto, modern, and post-colonial forms of globalization. These so-called phases of globalization, which overlapped and interacted with each other, were driven by similar impulses. Referring to early globalization, historian Christopher Bailey explained that globalizing networks were created by great kings and warriors searching for wealth and honor in fabulous lands, by religious wanderers and pilgrims seeking traces of God in distant realms, and by merchant princes and venturers pursuing profit amidst risks across borders and continents. The difference between earlier and later phases was determined by technological development. Subsequent phases of globalization and improved efficiency in the transactions sector generated flows of goods, bullion, and labor that were far more extensive than those achieved under earlier forms of globalization. Another way of looking at the so-called phases of globalization is in history is to distinguish between early globalism, so this is a new term I'm introducing, globalism prior to the 16th century and globalization of today. So two terms, globalism and globalization. I've been reminded by my good friend, Geraldine Hing, that the more careful of contemporary cultural theories do not usually deploy the term globalization mainly to indicate the planet's interconnectivity and networks. While both globalization and globalism are terms that have been spoken about negatively and pitted against ideals like nationalism and awareness of local variation, their use in a scholarly context is helpful in thinking about the types of interconnectedness that Singapore had experienced. The term early globalisms can refer to the links between places and peoples around the world even before the European maritime empires of the 16th to 19th centuries. Early globalisms can be contrasted with contemporary globalization, which is associated with complex, often ironic, uneven, and contradictory outcomes produced by new technologies and for which no pre-modern or early antecedents exist, to quote um, Geraldine Hing. American political scientist Joseph Nye explained globalism as a world system that is characterized by networks of connections that span multi-continental distances. Uh, to him, globalization refers to the degree to and speed with which globalism is expanding or declining. So the dynamics that generated early globalism or the globalization process were the networks that were established when migration of commodities, capital, ideas, and people took place over long distances. 
From very early on, many parts of the world, especially those accessible by water, have been connected by long-distance trade, with its attendant exchanges of goods, people, and ideas. This was especially true of maritime Southeast Asia, a region connected by commercial flows for centuries. As the axis between East Asia and the classical centers of India and the Middle East, uh, the archipelagic seas had for centuries been shaped by global migration, cultures, and religion tied together by trade and tradition. Long before the Europeans arrived in Asia, trading communities from the Arab world to China flowed through and operated in the region. For instance, an extensive Arab trading network stretching from the Persian Gulf to South China was already in place from the middle of the ninth century of the Common Era. Traders from the south of the Arab Peninsula were known to have plied the Indian Ocean um, through Ceylon and the Nicobar Islands to the port of Calabar, probably in modern Kedah in Malaysia, for trade. These extensive trade networks also included Sumatra and Java and extended eastwards uh, through the Straits of Malacca all the way to South China. It was through these connections that Islam first spread to the coastal cities of, by the end of the 13th century, becoming the great religion of commerce throughout the Indian Ocean. Like the Arabs, Indian merchants from the Malabar and Coromandel coasts had established trade links with Southeast Asia long before the coming of the Europeans. If you look at this map, you'll see that you know, these trade roads were uh, pretty established from, from India to the westwards to, South, uh, to the Middle East and eastwards to large parts of Southeast Asia. As regular traders, the Indian merchants probably preceded the Arabs and the Chinese. Indeed, historians have claimed that for more than 2,000 years, the lure of gold had drawn Indian merchants to Southeast Asia. By the 16th century, Indian traders were known to have frequented the major trading emporia of Tenasserim in Myanmar, or Burma, and Malacca, where wares and produce were bought and sold. Trade links were especially strong between South India and the Malay Peninsula, where the eastern ports, Indian ports and their western Malayan counterparts served as important entrepot centers in the east-west trade. Chinese sailors and merchants were already a regular sight in Southeast Asia from the time of the Han Dynasty, trading in fragrant timber, spices, and other exotic goods in exchange for Chinese pottery and silk. As a destination for trade, Southeast Asia then came to be known as part of the Nanhai trading region. The Nanhai trading uh, region functioned as a transshipment hub for China's trade with the rest as Chinese chunks rarely traveled beyond the Straits of Malacca at that time. Indian and Ceylonese traders dominated the Indian Ocean Lake of the Maritime Silk Road, while the Chinese dominated the Nanhai trade. Both groups would have converged at the Malay archipelago to trade. So Southeast Asia grew in prominence during the Tang Dynasty period when Srivijaya emerged as the dominant trading player in the Maritime Silk Road during the second half of the 7th century. This was, there was direct contact between the Sumatran power and China around 670, 680 uh, common era, and Sri Vijaya was deemed important enough to receive a royal envoy in 683. From the 8th century, Persian and Arab merchants operated the trading networks that connected the Chinese ports with the Indian Ocean. With their involvement, maritime commercial activity during the Tang period included the export of silk, cloth, ceramics, tea, copper, and iron wares from China to West Asia. 
So here I want to emphasize the role played by these intermediate traders. And the people were interested in Chinese goods, and the Chinese were trading up to a point, but it was these people who were facilitating the trade. The Tang shipwreck, I think many of you might have seen this, uh, found in the Java Sea, the Balutong cargo. Now uh, some of the artifacts on display at the Asian Civilization Museum is evidence of this trade that applied during that time. So Southeast Asia remained an important trading region throughout the Song Dynasty, and during the Ming Dynasty, notwithstanding changes in imperial policies on the conduct of trade, the Chinese maintained connections with many strategic ports in maritime Southeast Asia. The Chenghe voyages marked the high point of Chinese connections, but even with the termination of the court-sanctioned expeditions, the Chinese merchants continued to trade with the region. So at this point, I want to um, mention that what I've painted very quickly uh, is to explain that even before the onset of colonialism or the European uh, maritime empires, there were a lot of trade already happening in the Southeast Asian region. And these were conducted by very traditional classical communities, the Arabs, the Chinese, and the Indians. I want to now next uh, mention the point that this trade then gave rise um, to maritime cities, the coastal port cities that served as intermediaries um, to a long sort of trade networks. By the 13th century, long-distance east-west trade was conduct conducted through an efficient segmentation of networks. Segmentation of networks. These segments were the... We look at the segments that were drawn by this historian, uh, Janet Abu Logan, uh, talking about 13th century trade. So the idea was that the trade did not happen from point A to point B continuously because of the limitations of technology, but they were done in segments. So they connect from segment to segments. These segments were the Arabian Seas, Let's see now, the Arabian Seas, the Bay of Bengal, and the South China Sea. So you see they would connect from one segment to the other. That's how trade was done at that time. The segmentation of networks revolved around intermediate coastal stopovers, transit zones, and transshipment points. These locations developed into emporia where goods were collected, traded, and distributed. So these were nodal points of the trade networks. Many eventually became maritime cities. Anthony Reid points out that the buildup of trade networks led to the great expansion of cities and give them life. He further argues that in Southeast Asia before 1630, maritime cities were probably more dominant over their sparsely populated hinterlands than they were in many parts of the world. Ayutthaya, Tanglong on Hanoi, Aceh, Pegu, Malacca were examples of these maritime cities that developed into centers of wealth and power through trade, which were also antecedents of the colonial port cities. As centers of trade, it was not surprising that relatively large populations of merchants and sailors could be found in these maritime cities. Seasonal monsoon winds dictated the timing and regularity of travel along the shipping routes, limiting them to at most one single return voyage per year. As a result, Southeast Asian cities at their peak season are strong with visiting traders from all over Asia. In Malacca, for example, a large community of Tamil merchants known locally as Klings um, had settled with their families and were reported to have owned large estates and great ships. Many of these Tamil merchants went on to assume positions of power and authority in local society. Similarly, Chinese communities settled where they traded, and from the 9th to the 15th centuries, uh, travelers' accounts frequently noted 
the presence of settled Chinese communities in Palambang, Java, Cambodia, Siam, and Malacca. Wang Gangwu spoke of a Hokkien informal empire in the 15th century, and this refers to traders from South China uh, who were engaged in exchanges in the ports of Southeast Asia during this period. Now, I've shown that prior to the colonial era, local merchants had preceded European trading companies in weaving together Asian webs of trade. These webs were not broken up by the colonial intervention. Rather, colonial trading structures came to be built on these long-existing practices. After Singapore was established as a trading colony by the British, it continued to function as a node of overlapping diasporic walls and their networks. Colonialism in Singapore simply reinforced the systems, and by the end of the 19th century, the island became an established hub of an integrated system of trans-regional trade, pilgrimage, and knowledge production. These functions, flows, and networks sustain Singapore's strategic and economic position within the British Empire, which, by the end of the 19th century, it spanned from Afghanistan, including Egypt, India, Jamaica, Nigeria, Burma, Australia, and New Zealand. Singapore was no longer a regional port polity. Now it was part of a global empire. It had integrated with an intercontinental world. As a colonial port, trading port, however, Singapore's trade was a predominantly Asian one, covering the Malay archipelago, China, and India. As trade grew in volume, the commercial networks that Singapore served shaped the form and structure of Singapore, the port city. These networks provided the goods and services that sustained the colony, but also supplied the manpower that eventually formed the plural society of Singapore. So I'm going to show you a literary reimagination of a typical scene in Singapore from the, the novelist Amitav Ghosh in his book, River of Smoke. It's a great book. I recommend you read it. And this is set in the first half of the 19th century. I'm not going to read this. And while you read this, I'll just take a sip of water. But you can see the the richness of society at that time. So Singapore is depicted here as a site where assorted objects from elsewhere in Southeast Asia or even the distant corners of the Indian Ocean could be obtained. Amitav Ghosh alludes to the dubious means to which some of these goods reach the Pakain Pasar or clothes market, including violence, robbery, and piracy. Still, the mind-boggling range of items available and the market's unusual kind of renown far beyond Singapore showcased the free-willing leisure fair attitude and mode of commercial exchange typical of port cities. Now, Raffles had boasted that within three years of Singapore's founding, more than 3,000 vessels had called at Singapore's harbour. Singapore's free port status attracted junks from Siam, Cambodia, and Vietnam, which came to Singapore in droves. The arrival of these vessels brought goods and peoples and led to Singapore having one of the most diverse populations on earth. As a port city grew, so too did its migrant population. By the late 19th century, Singapore was considered one of the most cosmopolitan port cities in the region. Numerous groups of people were drawn to Singapore for trade and work. They arrived in different phases, but the numbers picked up significantly with the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869 and advances in steamship technology. There were also an eight-fold increase in the volume of trade that passed to Singapore between 1873 and 1913, a span of about 40 years. A visitor to the bustling port city would have been struck by the medley of people, 
Europeans, Chinese, Indian, and native. There was an observation made by uh, the British colonial administrator and scholar, J.S. Flanivel, who further noted that it is in the strictest sense a medley for they mix but do not combine. Mix but do not combine. Each group holds by its own religion, its own culture and language, to its own ideas and ways. As individuals, they meet, but only in the marketplace, in buying and selling. There is a plural society, he calls it a plural society, with different sections of the community living side by side, but separately within the same political union. Furnival, who was stationed in Burma for most of his career, argued that the mass migration to colonial port cities in Southeast Asia resulted in the creation of plural societies. His thesis started to gain currency from the 1930s and 1940s onwards, and those who subscribe to this school of thought have pointed out that migrant communities worked and traded alongside one another in the marketplace, but they lived in separate ethnic enclaves and their cultures remained closed and static. This segregation was further entrenched by municipal planning, which was shaped by three main considerations. Enabling business, number one. Number two, anchoring the mercantile community. And number three, segregating the different ethnic and occupational groups. Writing in 1934, Roland Bredel, a prominent lawyer, went to great lengths to describe the composition of different communities in Singapore. He categorized the Europeans, producing a long list of nationalities. These were his lists. Uh, he categorized the Asian communities by ethnic group, detailing the many subgroups under broader labels of Malays, Klings, Asiatics, Chinese, and Singapore's economy uh, at that time, as you can see from the slide, was certainly very plural in terms of its participants and sources of exchange. But this was quite typical of uh, colonial anthropology where they tried to label different groups uh, living in a particular society. So populations of different race and religion coexisted while living separately from each other. This could be seen from the ethnic enclaves that developed based on the 1822 town plan that the British colonial administration had implemented. So you can see they were all separated by communities, Chinese Kampong, Chulia, European town, Arab Kampong, and Bugis Kampong. There was a designated European town on the northern bank of the Singapore River, but European settlers subsequently moved away from the urbanizing city center, which was increasingly home to non-Caucasian communities. By the middle of the 19th century, the port had become a kaleidoscope of different segregated communities naturally coalescing along ethnic lines and trading alongside one another in the marketplace. There were also more active measures of exclusion. Colonial hotels tended to segregate non-white patrons without turning them away by giving them differential treatment from European patrons. While the port's business flew the flag of cosmopolitan openness, the social reality was at times one of strict boundaries between different groups that had converged on the city for trade and work. But reality often defies need categorization, and Singapore was no exception. Historian Sunil Amrith has pointed out that taking a broad view of migration, it is equally easy to find instances of cosmopolitanism and of segregation. Singapore was not merely a location where different communities settled and coexisted side by side. More importantly, it was a site of complex interactions between diverse groups facilitated by commerce, religious engagements, and knowledge production. 
This is where I would like to revisit the theme of flows and networks that sustain Singapore's strategic and economic position as a colonial port city. In my previous lecture, I referred to Tony Ballantyne's use of the metaphor of a web in the study of the British Empire. Ballantyne notes, the British Empire, as much as a spider's web, was dependent on intercolonial exchanges, important flows of capital, personnel, and ideas between colonies energized colonial development and the function of the larger imperial system. This analytical framework allows historians to uncover flows of capital, personnel, and ideas between colonies, which would otherwise go unnoticed if the focus was placed mainly on individual colonies. And it underscores the idea that the empire was a structure, a complex fabrication fashioned out of a great number of disparate parts or colonies that were brought together into a new relationship. I had spoken earlier about how the colonial trading arrangements were essentially built on pre-existing networks that had been established by merchant communities. The colonial order simply provided the conditions for older networks to be resuscitated and reinforced and for new ones to emerge. So I'm going to give an example to show this. The Asian rice trade, the Asian rice trade, which stretched from China to the Straits and the archipelago was developed quite independently of the Europe-oriented trade zones. It is a, by the middle of the 1800s, Singapore was the center of a dense web of Chinese finance and trade. A steady increase in Chinese migration to Singapore and Malaya, particularly among Chinese laborers who found work in the plantations and mines, had led to a burgeoning demand for rice in the region. The lucrative trade in rice was dominated by Teochew rice merchants who were based in Singapore but who were also known as Siam traders because of the large rice mills in Bangkok, which they owned. Together with the Chinese rice millers in Saigon, the Teochew rice merchants controlled the largest disposable amount of rice in Southeast Asia. The most prominent uh, among the Siam traders was this man called Choi Ziyong, who arrived in Singapore in the 1870s. Back in his native Swatow, Choi was a successful sugar merchant and a commission agent. Seeing an opportunity in a new trade in rice shipments, the Teochew merchant came to Singapore with a substantial amount of capital, uh, which he proceeded to invest in the import of Chinese goods and in Siam rice. By 1908, Choi was the head of the local Teochew clan, and he owned four rice mills in Siam, which produced over $10 million worth of rice. Half of this was sent to Singapore, and the other half to Hong Kong. While we now have a sense of how commercial networks operated, what is less commonly known and researched are the new forms of knowledge and cultural adaptation that came about as the different migrant communities interacted with each other. How did the practices and cultures change in the process of acculturation? Increasingly, historians are looking at colonial migration in terms of cultural exchanges that produce creative instances of cultural hybridity. For instance, in the absence of a common language and out of necessity, migrant communities developed new ways of communicating with one another and in the process created new linguistic and cultural forms. I was very intrigued with this dictionary. This is the Huayi Tongyi, which was published in Singapore in 1883. This dictionary, or actually vocabulary book, to use a more accurate term, was one of several Chinese Malay dictionaries produced in the 19th century as Chinese immigration to Malaya picked up 
significantly. Many of the migrants hailed from the Fujian and Guangdong provinces and spoke the southern Minnan dialects, such as Hokkien. In the absence of a common language, these migrants initially found it hard to communicate and trade with the Malay-speaking population. Attempts to overcome the language barrier saw the publication of several Chinese Malay dictionaries, which listed Malay words with equivalent terms in Chinese. Uh, the Huayi Tongyi contains more than uh, 2,800 words across 25 categories. The entries included common business phrases, names of various food and fruit, herbs and household items, as well as terms and concepts used in subjects such as mathematics, the numerals, geography, and cosmology. The author of the dictionary also devised a rather ingenious method of phoneticizing Malay words using the Min dialects. Not only does the Tongyi provide a useful historical record of words that are obsolete or rarely used today, um, it also offers an insight into the lives of Chinese migrants and their interaction with the local population. I think copies of this are available in the National Library, so if you're interested in having a close look, I recommend that you go and take a look. And it's very interesting how they phoneticize Malay words using Chinese characters. The acquisition of linguistic skills was what gave uh, certain merchant groups comparative advantage over others in the marketplace. Uh, however, not all merchant communities were equally adept at picking up languages. This was essentially, especially relevant before Chinese became the lingua franca. Making the case for more research on knowledge practices, historian Claude Markowitz argues that contrary to what is often assumed, merchant skills are not a static body of recipes which are simply transmitted from one generation to another. In other words, these are life skills that are transmitted. Um, merchant knowledge is not purely routine, but can often be innovative to a certain extent, at least in as much as it can adapt itself to changes in political and market conditions. One group which performed particularly well in this area were the Hyderabad Sindhi Walkies, originally a monolingual Sindhi-speaking community. Unlike the Jewish and Armenian merchants who generally received a multilingual education from childhood, Sindhi merchants who migrated in search of trade opportunities in the colonial period had to acquire multiple business languages in a very short time. So Markovic notes, one is struck by the capacity of such merchant groups to process information into a body of knowledge of a largely pragmatic kind concerning markets which gave them an advantage over competitors and which made them actively sought out by others. He adds, thus in Southeast Asia, Japanese companies valued highly the knowledge about markets accumulated by their Sindhi agents, and it was their possession of such knowledge that made the Hyderabadi Sindhi merchants indispensable intermediaries for some Japanese firms. There were other forms of networks built on ethnic and religious affinities that were effective because they fulfilled critical functions that leverage on Singapore's port city connections and position as a commercial node. Let me cite two examples to illustrate my point. The Natukotai Chetias had dominated the rural credit sector in many parts of Southeast Asia, Malaya, Burma, Thailand, and Cochin China in the 19th century. Chetia financial activities spanned the length and breadth of Southeast Asia even before the arrival of European colonialism. The increasing connectivity of the high noon of empire only served to strengthen the Chetia's transnational financial network. 
So I've, I've found some pictures of um, um, one of the most prominent Chetias um, in the 19th century, a man by the name of Mr. Supramaniam. Um, they celebrate Taipusam, and this is the Kitingis where they do their business. Chetia temples were important nodes of this network. More than religious sites, the temples served as clearing houses and places of business, as cashiers from Chetia firms would congregate at a temple to transact with the clients. Furthermore, the temples provided a meeting place for the Chetia Chamber of Commerce, allowing firms to exchange business information and set rules and norms governing trade. Consequently, these temples facilitated the development of a cohesive network of social relations, bringing together the Chetia community, allowing for the information exchange and coordination of financial activities necessary for international financial operations. The central role of religion to Chetia money lending reinforced the success of this global financial network. As devotees of Murugan, the Hindu god of war, Chetia moneylenders would invoke the deity as chairman and witness to all economic transactions. Moreover, concentrated temple funds loaned to firms were seen as a means of drawing divine involvement in financial dealings. Considering the sacred connotations that money lending had for the Chetias, business ethics became imperative since unfair dealings would constitute sacrilege against the deity. It would appear that religion served as a means of surveillance over Chetia business dealings and provided a unified ethical code of conduct for business, in contrast to other opportunistic behavior seen among other merchant communities that operated across vast distances. Thus, clients could expect a degree of reliability and trustworthiness from Chetias across Asia, facilitating international business. The, Ch the Chetias provided a ready source of credit for small businesses which would otherwise have found it difficult to secure loans from European banks. And they counted as their clients, not just Indians, but Chinese miners and businessmen, European planters, Malay royalty, and civil servants. It was known in Singapore and Peninsular Malaya that many a successful Chinese merchant began his climb from a loan from a Chetia. My second example is the pilgrimage trade, the Hajj. By the late 1800s, Singapore was the main departure point for Hajj pilgrims, who came from across Southeast Asia, in particular the Malay-Indonesia region. Before embarking on their journey to Mecca, the pilgrims had to first travel from their hometown to Singapore. Busora Street in the Arab Quarter was where Hajj pilgrims could find many businesses that catered specifically to their needs, from clothing to accommodation. In this setting, Malays from the Malay states intermingled with Muslims from different social and economic backgrounds. So here's a, here's a picture of uh, the uh, Hajj activities, Hajj pilgrims gathering at the Singapore Harbour Front. Arab communities, Arab communities played a key role in managing the pilgrimage markets. Prior to their arrival in Singapore, Arab merchants had successfully established commercial and social networks in the Indo Malay Archipelago. And using Singapore as a base, these Arab recruiters would roam through uh, the region seeking prospective pilgrims. And the task was to identify pilgrims, guide them through the preparatory process, and then escort them to Arabia. Such was the degree of organization of such recruiters that they structured themselves into guilds and obtained recruiting licenses from the colonial authorities. 
Given that the holy sites were in a foreign and distant land, uh, Arab entrepreneurs in the Malay Indonesia Indonesian world served the function of promoting and facilitating the participation from the locals. For much of the last century uh, of colonial rule, the pilgrimage trade was largely controlled by the Arabs in Singapore. Arab-owned steamships transporting Hajj pilgrims became a common sight at Singapore's harbour. So you've heard of these famous families, the Al-Sagovs, the Aljunids, the Al-Kafs, and these families had made their fortunes uh, largely through the pilgrimage business. Although the pilgrimage trade started off small, it grew so rapidly that by the end of the 19th century, the number of pilgrims had risen to more than 7,000 from a modest 2,000 pilgrims in 19, 1850s. This number only continued to increase, say for the years during the First and Second World War. By the early 20th century, over 10,000 Malay Indonesians embarked on the Hajj annually. After the introduction of air transport, the numbers ballooned, with over half a million in 1958 alone. Throughout the years, the Hajj remained an important driving force of migratory travels and mercantile trade. Several factors were responsible for the growing pilgrimage trade in Southeast Asia. One significant factor, especially during the early period, was the Arab communities in the region who persuaded local Muslims to embark on the pilgrimage. In the 19th and 20th centuries, the European companies also played a crucial role, um, introducing new technologies and organizational methods um, to the trade. For instance, steamship services and pilgrimage arrangement companies were introduced into the region making mass transport by sea more accessible than before. European shipping companies also fostered networks with indigenous firms that provided entry to markets, clients, and cargoes. Uh, they worked these connections into the wider global networks uh, they were assembling, creating large economies of scale and efficiency in the pilgrimage trade. Ultimately, the Hajj was both a religious and a commercial affair in the Strait Settlements, with Singapore being the locus for the pilgrimage trade. It was profitable but also poorly regulated, at least in the early days, thus resulting in the exploitation of pilgrims. This was largely due to the British role in the Hajj, which oscillated between their desire for profit and the need to protect their reputation as a governing power. Commercial interests ultimately worn out. Nonetheless, given the extensive movement of Muslims through this affair, the Hajj was a crucial factor in explaining migratory patterns and the formation of Malay communities in Singapore. The migratory movements of Muslims facilitated by the Hajj also resulted in the spread of ideas, customs, and traditions. Many Indonesians, uh, Malay Indonesians returning from the Hajj, for instance, were demonstrably more devout with their Islamic practices. It is no wonder that colonial rulers saw these movements as a threat, introducing social and political thought, often Islamic reformist ideas from other regions. This was especially so with the Dutch, who initiated restrictive rules of Hajj travels for the East Indies from the 19th century. The British in Singapore, too, became concerned about Mecca as the site of the spread of anti-colonial pan-Islamist ideas. Colonial port cities, being diverse and cosmopolitan, provided public spheres which allowed elites and literate classes to communicate and debate with one another. Take, for example, Malay publications such as newspapers, magazines, and literature. The dissemination of these materials and the accompanying spread of ideas 
was stimulated by the advent of the Malay lithograph and subsequently the printing press with the main distribution and publication center situated in Singapore. So Singapore was the center of Malay publication and literature dissemination in the 19th century. In fact, with the added stimulus of more frequent and extensive communication with the Middle East, coupled with the introduction of new communication technologies, Singapore quickly grew to become a center for Islamic life, learning and literature in the Malay Muslim world in the late 19th century. The printing press was introduced in Southeast Asia in the 16th century, with the first Malay book, a Malay Dutch dictionary, published in Batavia in 1677. Um, the first complete Malay Bible in Jawi was published in the same country in 1746. It was only in the early 19th century that British missionaries set up stations and printing presses in Singapore to spread religious ideas. The printing of Malay texts thus began through a collaboration between a Danish missionary and Abdullah bin Abdul Qadir, a translator from Malacca. He's better known as Munshi Abdullah. The first printing press in Singapore, Mission Press, was then established in 1823. Abdullah's original literary works, including the famous Hikayat Abdullah, uh, was published by the press. Mission Press continued to be operated by missionaries with the help of Munshi Abdullah as a translator until the 1860s, when the first indigenous printers and publishers emerged in Singapore. These indigenous printers were primarily immigrants from Java who settled in Kampung Glam. The printing industry flourished from the 1860s, peaking in the 1880s. Early lithograph publications tend to be jointly produced with contributions from copies and owners of the text and press, resembling uh, the form of a Malay manuscript. Some of the most prolific Malay printers during the period included uh, Haji Muhammad Said bin Haji Ashad and Haji Muhammad Siraj bin Haji Saleh. Uh, the former, along with his sons, published more than 200 Malay publications between 1873 and 1918, while the latter published more than 80 Malay books. A significant marker of the early phases of the Malay vernacular press was the publication of the first Malay newspaper, in 1876, the Jawi Puranakan. This is the copy of the Jawi Puranakan. The newspaper owned a significant number of lithograph presses and had a circulation of about 250 copies. It doesn't appear like a lot, but probably in those days, with the kind of lithographic printing technology you have, that was quite a bit of uh, copies that they could produce. In 1888, with the passing of the newspaper's chief editor, the Jawi Puranakan struggled to keep afloat as public support diminished. During this period, another newspaper, the Sekola Malayu, emerged, aimed at, creating, at catering to the needs of students in Malay schools in Singapore. Sekola Malayu is significant in the history of the development of the Malay vernacular press, as for the first time, the question of language was raised and discussed openly in editorials. I tried to get hold of a copy of the Sekola Malayu, but I couldn't find an image but I'll, I'll keep trying and see whether in, for the publication of this, this piece in a book, I can have an image showing uh, the Sekola Malayu. Indeed, similar to how new ideas on language emerge in the Sekola Malayu, the increasing publication of Malay religious and secular writings in Singapore during the period helped spread the awareness of social and political thought, as well as expand the literary imagination of the Malay Muslims in the Strait Settlements. 
Religious texts were also an important cornerstone of the publishing scene. In many parts of the world since the ancient times, printing has been used to diffuse religious and ethical literature. In the early 1890s, for instance, a waziat, a literature on revivalist Islamic thought, circulated in profusion in the Straits, printed and reprinted in both Singapore and Palambang. Other materials, such as old and new translations of classical romances, the legends of Arabic and Persian origin and Islamic flavor, traditional folk tales, poetry, and modern autobiographical chronicles were also increasingly produced by Singapore lithographers. Literary activity in the region was indeed diversifying and growing rapidly. After 1900, Malay lithographic printing output declined. Eventually, such printing technique was overtaken by more efficient letterpress. Moreover, the Malay book market had to compete with publications from India and the Middle East imported by Malay booksellers, and many local publishers were affected and had to scale back on their output, eventually seizing their operations. Malay newspapers continued to gather a substantial audience, achieving success. Newspapers became more popular with the increasing number of urban Malays and the new medium was better able to fulfill the information needs of the community as well as adapt to their changing reading patterns. Re religious questions only emerged from newspaper publications from 1906 with the establishment of the journal El Imam. After returning to Singapore from his studies in Egypt, El Imam's founder had a desire to bring social and religious reforms into Malaya to purify Islam from malpractices and non-Islamic influences and to eradicate despondency, inertia, and feeling of inferiority which were predominant among the Muslims in Malaya. While the paper only lasted for three and a half years, his call for religious reforms were adopted by subsequent publications. During the period, however, it should also be noted that a diverse range of publications still existed the popular Utosan Malayu, for instance, still focused largely on world news and had no interest in dealing with religious issues. The first newspaper published daily, the Lambaga Malayu, also dealt mainly with foreign and domestic news, eventually becoming the main Malay newspaper of the Strait Settlements until the 1930s, during which time Malayan political issues received prominent coverage. Now, I've covered a lot of grounds, given a lot of details, and I think I may have lost many of you. So I'm, I'm going to conclude now, and I'm going to pull it all together. I'm going to pull it all together. Okay. So the first point I want to make is Singapore was global in its outlook long before Mr. Rajaratnam articulated his vision of Singapore as a global city. I've shown in this lecture that Singapore is home to flows of people and goods, circulations of populations, and the site of networks sustained by commerce and religion. Amidst this context emerged hybridity in terms of communities, cultural practices, and ideas. For instance, Singapore was home to mobile societies. This was a term used by uh, Ing Sing Ho, um, such as the Southern Chinese trade diaspora. And as Ing Sing described it, Singapore was part of an inter-Asian space, crisscrossed criss -cross by connections and societies. I've referred to early globalization and the circulations, connections, and networks that frame Singapore's port city existence in the title of today's lecture. This interconnectivity took place at a pace slower than the instant communications afforded by today's technologies, but was nonetheless very much present in pre-modern Singapore 
and its colonial days. Another point which I hope uh, you will take away from this lecture is that Singapore was both a plural and a cosmopolitan city. What are the key features of plurality versus cosmopolitanism? A plural society, as described by Furnival, is one that is segregated with groups that live side by side, yet without mingling. According to Furnival, different segments in a plural society would not share common values and social bonds. On the other hand, a cosmopolitan society is one where there's intermingling among different groups, and individuals look beyond national boundaries in building cultural, political, and economic connections. Globalizing cities tend to foster cosmopolitanism. In other words, openness derived from divergent cultural experiences. However, cities and the societies are fluid and evolve over time. So Singapore was at times more plural than cosmopolitan, sometimes both simultaneously. We have good accounts of how specific diasporas came to settle in Singapore and adjusted to the new environment. And we know much less about how the different diasporas conversed with one another. Still, recent research has offered some insights into how public print cultures, which I've referred to, Malay newspapers, etc., and other institutions in the late colonial period facilitated cross-cultural interaction in Southeast Asian port cities. Individuals' identities and affiliations were far more complex than broad categories could encapsulate. People came to Singapore, often just passing through on their way to or from their intended destinations, yet settled down here. Singapore then became one of the most cosmopolitan cities in Asia by the end of the 19th century. But where do we stand today? After decades of efforts in nation building and the promotion of racial harmony within the CMIO framework, do we risk developing a more impoverished and narrow concept of what Singapore and Singaporeans are? This is a question we ought to ponder as we attempt to strengthen our sense of identity. And even as we write and make our national history, we should take into account our much longer and richer past where we were a point of convergence for peoples from all over the world, a place that afforded them opportunities, vitality, interactions, and cross-cultural encounters, and out of which grew a diverse, tolerant, and multicultural population that went on to define modern Singapore. Thank you very much. Um, there's something interesting happening here in the sense that there are three series of talks on history going on in Singapore now. One is sponsored by the Department of uh, History at NUS, the Journal of Southeast Asian Studies, Historia, together with the Asia Research Institute and the National Library. Uh, they have had four talks already. Then the other is by ISIS, uh, Nalanda Srivijaya Center, which is also doing another series of talks on before 1824, featuring the work of ISIS staff, Nalanda Srivijaya staff, alumni, who have contributed to that understanding of uh, Singapore before 1824. And now we have uh, this series of uh, talks here by Tan Taiyong, and in all three, we have got remarkably full audiences. So there's something happening here, this renewed interest in uh, Singapore history, which I think is to the good here. Um, 
Singapore's history being written as that of a port city. A port city, of course, is a bit different from uh, ordinary, most other cities, as he pointed out. You know, cities in the common usage is a strategic location where some king has located his castle and then a settlement grows up around it, or is a point in the landscape where the peasants come for a weekend market, pilgrims pass through and stop, travelers pass through, and a settlement grows up. But a port city, by definition, starts off first as a harbor, a port of some sort where sailors, mariners, traders stop at the coast. And then a city grows up around that uh, port to service that port here. And so this is what Tayong has been talking about, that Singapore as a port city is no different from a host of other colonial port cities, Chennai, which was a fishing village before it became a port, Calcutta, Banten in Java, or Jakarta. Which so in that sense then, how is this idea, and I'll, let me put the first question to Tayong, how is this first, you know, this, uh, this uh, port city, Singapore is a port city, its historical trajectory from the 19th century to today, compare or more or develop into that of a global city that uh, he referred to when he talked about Mr. Rajaratnam. Does a global city come out of a port city or is it something different, like the 19th century colonial port city came out, but it's different from that of the pre-colonial emporium that Tomasic was in the 14th century, or arguably even the Shabanda, the port under the Johor Sultan in the Singapore River or the Kalang River estuary. So Tayong, how does the, the global city you know, connect to a port city, or does it not at all? Okay, that's that's a that's a big question. Probably you have to come for my next lecture for me to understand it more fully. <clears throat> no, um, well, let me let me try to answer this question in two parts. What I was trying to get across in today's lecture is to try to encapsulate an instinct, an instinct about Singapore, that. For long parts of its history, it had functioned as some sort of an open entity that has to remain open for its survival and to be connected to either the region or to the rest of the world. So before 1819, it was, as we all know now, um, in different times connected to different trading networks. And then after 1819, um, it was a colonial port city, and it, it did very well in terms of trade. So this is a continuation in my argument that um, Singapore's entity is largely defined by its ability to stay open and stay connected and leverage on opportunities offered um, by these trading networks. So I'm describing an instinct here. But of course, times change, and with the onset of technology, adaptation has to happen. So 
You can see a transition between a port city to a global city as that of an instinctive reaction um, for a small place like Singapore having to stay open, having to stay connected. But of course, the functions of a port city and a global city are very different in terms of strategy. In terms of strategy. So I would say that um, to, to succeed as a global city, one has to carry that instinct of openness, connectedness, change and innovation, but the strategies of arriving at a global city would be very different and adaptation is very important. So um, I was reading uh, Saskia Sassen, who has written about global cities, and she has talked about how global cities function um, to support multinational corporations, and then there are issues of intermediation where you create different types of specialization that different cities then, then take up, and also differentiation. So it's a different sort of strategy, and I think um, port cities can, can remain port cities without being a global city, but I think in Singapore, uh, the instinct and the strategy has come together where you see the evolution of Singapore from port city, which it still is, um, to aspiring to be a global city in terms of a more complex set of operations that it now uh, assumes for itself. Well, thank you, Tang, for opening up <clears throat> that discussion. Uh, could I invite the uh, sure. first set of two or three uh, questions? Kishore, please. <coughs> we don't have a mic around. Uh, it's okay, I'll rise to the occasion. <laughs> Tayong, <laughs> um, that was a fascinating lecture and I learned a lot from you and I thank you very much for all the research that you put in. So it's a bit strange for me to now say to you that I'm going to ask you a very unfair question. And I'm, I think you probably have to be somewhat speculative uh, in your answer, but I hope you'll engage in speculation and maybe Chong Guan can build on your speculation after that. And my question is this clearly, you pointed out the various continuities within Singapore and its past, but there are also discontinuities. An example of continuity is that you were a major trading center then, we are a major trading center now. Example of discontinuity, we are a major pilgrimage center then, we are no longer a major pilgrimage center now. So if you had to discuss the sort of the contemporary Singapore of the last 50 years, eh? and compare it with the Singapore of the previous 600 years, for example. What are the major continuities that you see in Singapore? And what are the major discontinuities, especially in the area of culture and identity? Well, I think that's a sufficiently significant question to be answered on its own without being cluttered by two other questions here. Maybe I should. I, should, yes, I, I think you should answer that one first. And since, I think it goes into your other lectures. Since, since Kishore had risen to the occasion, uh, how can I not? The continuities I had elaborated in my first lecture that if one were to look at 700 year history of Singapore, uh, there, there are these continuities of Singapore um, needing to uh, uh, being cognizant of forces beyond its shores. In other words, Singapore has always got to look outwards, um, look out for opportunities, and also that Singapore's fate and fortunes are determined to a large extent um, by forces outside of its shores. In other words, it does not have complete control of its larger destiny, if you want. That's a continuity. And that trade, as I earlier mentioned, 
openness, connectivity, these are connectivities. So in other words, Singapore has no option to turn inwards and just be um, by itself and disconnected with the rest of the world. That's continuity. The largest discontinuity, in my view, is that in 1965, Singapore became a nation state. It became a nation state. And that's a large discontinuity. The stories that I've just told <coughs> were organic stories. The colonial state was a very small state. It was leisure fair. All they wanted to do was make sure that money was made, law and order maintained. There was no interest in developing society. There was no interest in looking after the welfare of people. People looked after themselves. Communities looked after themselves. In 1965, we changed that altogether. From a very small state, we became a very large state. The state basically intervened in everything. It was a developmental state. It had to grow the economy. It had to build a country. It had to build a nation. And so the state took part in every aspect of life in the country. So that's the difference between a uh, nation state and a city state. And this is a theme which I would like to um, get to in a subsequent lecture. And so come back. Come back. So, <laughs> so this is a kind of a, 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 tra a trailer for you. The point, the point is that, the point is that if you look at Singapore's long history, nation statehood, only 53 years, right? It's a glitch in 700 years history. But Singapore functioned, if you just take the colonial state from 1819 to 1965, as a successful port uh, city. And this is driven by the energies, the innovation, and the vitality of people in an organic sense. The state did not play much of a role other than to ensure you know, some law and order. And as explained in the uh, Hajj example, uh, the British were sometimes in two minds, whether to regulate or not to regulate. So I think that's a fundamental difference. So the question going forward, and if you want to try to look into the future, is what is the future of the nation state for Singapore? And I better stop here because I, I'm getting into controversial territory. And maybe... And next lecture. And next lecture. Um, the questions are not only from those in this room here, but also in the other outside rooms, where I believe there are pieces of paper for you to write, isn't it? Am I right? Yeah. So don't feel excluded in that room there. Send in your questions. Can I then? Uh, May I? Yes, okay, Anne. Thank you. Thanks for a very great talk. I wonder if you'd agree with me that the 1920s are a date which is very significant. Between 1920 and 1930 was the first decade when births outnumbered deaths. And it was around the time when South China was becoming so unsafe that people were bringing their families here. And in fact, over one doorway in Niven Road, there was a golden blackboard with golden writing. And I was told that the writing on the board said, we have brought our rice fields to the south implying they'd given up hope of going back and then they'd settled here. And Professor Wang Gangwu's wonderful biography 
also shows that the upper classes were trying to go back to China, but it didn't work, and they were coming out. Now, up, I would say until about 1920, we might say that Singapore had been a sort of major central business district in which people came and earned a living, but that living was intended to be spent when they went back to their place of origin. But after this period, it became a place of families, which is a totally different kind of responsibility and a totally different sort of civic situation. I wonder if you would feel that was an important break in Singapore's history. Uh, well, very quickly, I mean, I, I have not done the kind of deep research that you have done, but if you know, if you look at, say, migration statistics, uh, it is probably correct that, you know, from the 1870s, there were lots of movement uh, from South China coming into Singapore. But I think the length of time in which they stayed and the sort of uh, fragility of, of existence here um, was such that uh, people didn't last long here. But I think from the 1920s, when things got settled and the colonial structure became a bit more established, I think that's what, that was when the population got a little bit settled, a lot more settled, rather. And I think this is where you see, I think, a settled plural community, if you believe Furnival or cosmopolitan society, um, established in Singapore from about the 1920s and 30s onwards. And then there was the disruption of the war, but then after the war, citizenship came into the picture, and then that settled in. Well, the other, of course, was that colonial policies changed, as you know, Anne. After 1910, there was a more welfare-orientated, white man's burden colonial policy that came in not only in Malaya, but also in the other Dutch East Indies. But let me stop there, and I think there's a lady there with a mic. Hello, hi. Um, thank you so much for your fascinating lecture. Um, I'm Rachel Ui, I'm from Yale and US, and um, I have two related questions. So the first is regarding your description of the um, colonial constructions of race, um, especially of the diverse racial groups in Singapore at the time. Um, under the category for Malay racial groups, there, um, there was listed real Malays in quotation marks and then a list of um, presumably less real Malays. So <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on why these, how these colonial authorities understood the realness of Malays. Um, and the second question is, um, how far do you think these colonial constructions of race um, undergird today's conceptions of race in Singapore? Um, because it strikes me that the um, four groups sort of resemble something like our CMIO at present. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, uh, very happy to see students from the college. Thank you for coming to support. Um, racial, racial categorization in, uh, in the colonies was um, a, a major preoccupation with the authorities, simply because I think they needed to have what they call knowledge uh, with which to govern. So uh, in Singapore, um, many of these practices were derived from what was done in India, where they also categorized uh, populations uh, very carefully. Now, this is not science, and basically it is down to the colonial administrators um, trying to understand, uh, in their own view, um, what are the distinguishing characteristics or features of different types of people. So 
when they define a Malay, a real Malay, they probably have in their minds certain criteria that have to be met before you could be defined as a Malay. And if you didn't meet those criteria, then you were not considered um, um, suitable to be put in that category. Now, I'm not as familiar as this uh, in this sort of uh, studies as I am of some of the practices that has happened in India. And I'll give you an example. The martial races in India. Uh, this was a category which the British developed um, to justify why they would be uh, recruit, they should be recruiting only from certain groups of people in India, and the martial race was created as a myth, as a colonial myth to justify why certain people would make better warriors than others. I mean, yes, you can say that there are um, environmental or geographical reasons why some people would uh, more readily take up arms and fight than others. So maybe people in the rural sector living in frontier lands were more inclined to uh, violence than those people in the urban setting. I mean, those kinds of generalizations you make. But what the British did was they developed that into some sort of an anthropology where they would write books detailing with, you know, what would uh, a person belonging to this race have. And I've read some of this um, these publications, and they're so detailed. You have to belong to a particular part of uh, a village, and you have to be part of this particular clan, and you have to be uh, a descendant of this person, and that sort of thing. So it's, it's colonial science, if you want, but that's how they uh, basically develop this knowledge, which then they used to govern. And basically, it's to separate and it's to develop colonial policies that uh, will support one group and not support another group. So that's probably what they did in Singapore as well, because it was a totally migrant community that was coming in here, right? So they needed to know uh, Chinese, Malays, Indians, and you saw from uh, uh, Roland Braddle's uh, classification, and they went into great details in det you know, dis uh, determining which group you belong to. So it's, it's, a, it's a form of uh, uh, colonial administration, and then they basically, the, the British developed their own CMIO categories for census and other purposes, which Singapore inherited to some extent. Okay, we have a gentleman there who's patiently waiting. Thank you so much, Prof Tan, for that the one, lecture. That gentleman there first, and then you after that. Yeah. Um, so my question, actually, it's that given that Singapore has been, as you've quote, uh, as I quote you, open uh, has been an open entity and has relied on the fossils of globalization for hundreds of years. How do we currently navigate through a world that seems isolationist day, as day goes by? And are there any historical examples of this which could help guide us today? No, I, I think if you, if you read the, the speeches of our political leaders, I think there's a lot of anxiety about a world that is turning you know, inwards and becoming more nationalistic. Singapore needs to trade. Singapore needs trading uh, uh, arrangements. Singapore needs to be open. Uh, you know, G uh, what, uh, our, our, our trading statistics are four times GDP, that sort of thing. So you need to basically continue to keep a certain openness and um, closing boundaries, closing uh, trading arrangements, uh, moving away from trade uh, packs and all these are things that are going to be harmful for places like Singapore. So historically, I don't know whether there is a, a precedent that one can look at, but the point is that um, now with boundaries, with uh, state borders and all, it's becoming a, a bit of a worry given trends that we are seeing around the world. Um, and this is not going to be good, in my view, for a place like Singapore. So we need to be nimble and find ways in which we can continue to navigate this space. Um, 
you know, that's why I was talking about the instinct, and the instinct of Singapore is very different from the instinct of a large country, which could just close borders and turn inwards. Singapore really has no choice, and um, it has to function as a hub, it has to function as a nodal point for connectivity, and this is the only way in which I think Singapore is going to continue to do well. Now, then I come to Kishore's point, is it, what is the, discon the, 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 the difference? The difference is that now we are a city-state, uh, a nation-state, a nation-state. And how do you navigate uh, these tensions between a nation-state where you have interests of citizens to look after, but at the same time needing to remain open uh, to the world? And these are, I guess, challenges that Singapore will face uh, as we move forward. So I don't have a, a direct answer to your question, but I think uh, current trends are indeed worrying for a place like Singapore. Thank you. Well, cycles of globalization. <laughs> But uh, that gentleman there. Good evening, Professor. My name is Rahman. I'm a student from NTU. My question is, okay, it is now recognised that Singapore has the world as our hinterland. That said, uh, as you mentioned, we were a major shipping and trading port and we still are. Now, there have been discussions on and off about China's Belt and Road Initiative wanting to fund the Kra Isthmus Canal project in Thailand. In your opinion, would Singapore lose its cosmopolitan nature? or it's, uh, would it still maintain its position as a global city with regards to shipping and trading should the Krasmus Canal plan be executed? Not, uh, not considering as well that there are dominant Chinese plans to invest in Malaysian ports and Indonesian ports. Thank you, sir. These challenges are not new. I mean, the Isthmus of Kra has been talked about for several decades. And uh, if you cut across the Isthmus of Kra, basically ships don't have to sail down that far south to Singapore, right? And that, that's uh, an existential threat. And whether that will happen or not, I guess one has to wait and see. Uh, but these things are always of concern. Now, you recall some years ago, I mean, we always talk of location as Singapore's uh, fundamental advantage, right? So we are located at a point in the Straits of Malacca where ships have to sail through. And I think in Malaysia, they tried to develop two ports. I think in Pasir Gudang and Tanjung Palapas. Basically, it's the same location, right? So in a, in a way, if they had succeeded, then you know, it would have cut off Singapore's strategic advantage. So I, think, I guess it's more than location now. It's, it's strategy and how well you do certain things. Airports is another example, right? If um, an airport in Bangkok were to do very well, then you do have to fly that far south to come down to Singapore. So these are always challenges that a small country like Singapore will have to think about. And historically, it has to, uh, you know, if it draws on history, then it has to think about how it can maintain its strategic advantage. Location is there, it's a given, geography. But then it's about, as I said earlier, how you negotiate the forces of globalization, how you develop strategies uh, to adapt to change circumstances and be quick enough to address those change circumstances. And I think that's the thing that's got to keep Singapore going forward. You cannot just depend on one set of factors and think that these are going to be uh, perennial and it will not go away and that Singapore will be fine. I think the, cha the challenges are constant, notwithstanding the fact that we are located in a, a very good position, but still uh, other factors will have to come into play. Thank you, Prof. Right, the next uh, question, do I see a... Again, thank you so much for the talk. Um, I'm Sasha from Yale and US. Uh, from your presentation, it seemed like there, were a, there was a sizable Arab and Persian community, as well as Armenian and Jewish communities. I was wondering if there was a reason for their decline to our present day 
uh, situation, or were they just not uh, permanent residents of Singapore? Um, so, so the question is about um, the other minorities in Singapore. I think I think there are still these communities around Armenians, uh, Baghdadi Jews, and all these. I mean, David Marshall was 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 an Iraqi Jew, and um, they have churches here, they have institutions here, but they are not large in terms of numbers. So it looks like uh, they've disappeared, but I, I think they are still around. Uh, it's just that they are not visible in terms of their numbers, um, but. You know, you, you, you find many of them still around. So they are classified largely under the other category, right? Yeah, the, the old category. Uh, but, you know, um, there have been lots of histories written by students uh, on, on, on these small communities, these minority communities. And I think if you were to do some research, you'll find that there's a, there are rich stories, there's a rich tapestry of these groups of people who have contributed to the making of modern Singapore. My question was, was there a decline from the earlier period pre-colonial? You know, this, this, there will be ups and downs as, as people move back, as uh, birth rates drop and that sort of thing. But as I said, the numbers are not large enough and the, 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 the changes in, in, in the, 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 the community is not substantial enough for us to really make, a, a, I guess, a big observation about whether there was decline or not. But I guess if one were to track the population, it would go up and down. And in some cases, you know, like, um, you know, I, I studied the Sikh population in Singapore. Um, sometimes they are not even captured on census. They are just uh, put together as Indians. So one doesn't really know. Uh, for the longest time when I was trying to write uh, my, my, my undergraduate thesis on the Sikhs, I, I, I had census figures until 1950. And then after that, it was a kind of a guesstimate. No? The community will tell me there are about 12,000 Sikhs in Singapore. And then you guess whether you know, it's increased or it's, it's the numbers have gone down. But these are the kinds of uh, small minority communities that you know, we have to do more research into. But my, I guess the answer to your question is that there were, would have been fluctuations, uh, but I'm not sure whether the, the, the fluctuations are so substantive, substantial to see a kind of a decline or an increase in the populations. Thank you. Well, we have time for one or two more questions. Are there any? Yes, the uh, gentleman there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, Professor Tan, thanks for your lecture. Um, you mentioned just now that uh, 65 was a discontinuity when we became from city-state to nation-state. Uh, and... and what comes after. Uh, take the case of Hong Kong. Hong Kong, uh, from, from until 97, uh, was pretty, pretty much laissez-faire. And uh, the British governed Hong Kong slightly different from Singapore because uh, society there is a bit more homogeneous, Chinese, uh, about Southern Chinese. Um, so, uh, my question is that uh, the tale of two cities, how do you see uh, maybe in the future uh, Singapore vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong, how, how uh, we two global cities, uh, I mean, I think Hong Kong and Singapore would be pretty much global cities, uh, would, would uh, fare in the next next 
uh, many years to come. Second question is that uh, I spend a lot of time working in international trade, and every time I see the map of the One Road, One Belt uh, that is depleted, uh, especially in China, is there's always Singapore that's missing, typically, uh, for, for some reasons. Um, I want to ask you that uh, uh, the, the, the guy there mentioned about uh, the, the Thai Canal and all these things, but uh, you're aware that the, uh, there's efforts being made uh, to bypass the streets of Malacca. Uh, trade now, uh, trade routes now are changing, right? Uh, being configured because of technology, because of changes in transportation, because of digital trade, is changing rapidly. Uh, so trade routes, traditional trade routes, uh, may change. And you, your, your map on the 13th century trade routes was very, in, in, very interesting because it shows Genoa and Venice, uh, nation state that basically disappear after a few hundred years. So how can Singapore, and for that matter, Singapore and Hong Kong fare vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis, say Genoa and uh, not Genoa, the other one. Venice. Uh, 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 Genoa and Venice. Uh, uh, these two cities which were the overlap in the, in the European area. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, perhaps you should take yeah. the other question as well. Uh, sure, I, I'd like to kind of come back to your last question which actually I'm a little bit sad that you concluded on that rather than expanded on it, this question about Singaporean identity. So in my, in my mind, you have, uh, when, a, when a country comes to a, some degree of prominence, um, they, they're able to uh, offer some kind of contribution to the world. You look at Switzerland, and because they are in almost very, very inherently neutral, they are a safe haven for uh, investments and things like this. You look at the US, because of this particular context and history, it has been able to offer uh, aspects of human rights and, and this kind of thing. And so we look at Singapore, uh, it, it's, in my mind, it's uh, a, a rise to prominence is in the context of a logistical hub uh, and, and being a strategic center of, of ASEAN or of the Southeast Asia. And so to me, when I look at Singapore, one of the major contributions that it can offer to the whole world is this, uh, uh, how it has been able to have different races and religions come together in harmony in a very peaceful society. That, that to me is uh, quite a wonderful thing. Uh, but what I, what I don't see enough of is uh, Singapore's ability to export this learning to the rest of the world. So I'm just thinking about uh, what, what does it take, what is necessary for uh, Singapore to tap into this identity and be able to share this with the wider uh, world at, at a global stage? Okay, so... Right. That uh, will probably be the last question. Okay, all right. Um, I, I, let me take the first question first. You know, it, it's, it's a big question and I think there are many parts to it, but I'll, I'll just simply say this. I mean, if you want to compare Hong Kong and Singapore, once a Chinese city... All right, it's a Chinese city now existing under one country, two systems. And Hong Kong's future essentially will be determined by how they negotiate the two system and how the two systems will play out. Uh, and you know, this will be a major determinant of Hong Kong's destiny. Singapore is a nation state, decides its own uh, future. It's, it's a sovereign state. Of course, I did mention that you know, there are larger forces at work but it's a sovereign state. So I think it's a question of hinterlands, which I'm going to touch about in a, in a future lecture as well. Singapore's hinterland is now the world, right? I mean, it, it, it shifted. And in a, in, a, in a future lecture, I'm going to 
explain how this hinterlands shifted. But the hinterlands now the world, in a way, Hong Kong's hinterland, in economic terms, is the world, but the Chinese uh, presence is, is quite overwhelming. So how we negotiate the two systems, one country, is going to be, I think, a very significant factor. Um, in answer to the second question, um, I, I don't know whether it is uh, the desire of our political leaders or Singapore to, in a way, um, show the world how to do certain things. I think uh, we want to make sure that Singapore works for our own purposes, that you know we have a harmonious kind of society, that multiculturalism, the way it's been developed in Singapore, would continue to uh, um, flourish and evolve. Um, and I don't know whether that the intention is to use that as an example to show the rest of the world. If others were to want to look at a Singapore example and see what can be drawn from the Singapore example, that's fine. But I don't think it is the desire of uh, Singaporeans to go and say, this is how the world should look like, take a leaf from us, and we'll show you the way. Mm. And I can tell you that these things will evolve as well. You know, just as you think that you know, you've got it right, uh, circumstances will change, context will change. And I think you have to be cognizant of the fact that this is also work in progress and that we have not really arrived in a way. I mean, I could have a long debate with you about multiculturalism. Are we really multicultural or not? And this is something that you know, one can talk about. But the point is that you know, we've tried to adopt, Singapore has tried to adopt policies that would work for Singapore. And if this can be seen as an example, fine. If not, then that's okay. I mean, that's not Singapore's intention to teach the world how to organize themselves. So um, I, 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 can, I can understand the, 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 the trust of your question is, what can Singapore offer? What can Singapore offer the world in terms of an example of governance? And I think there are many, there are many. I think I would advise you to go to Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy uh, <laughs> and, and, and learn from Kishore and, and, and his colleagues because there are many examples of how Singapore has done some things well, adapted and adopted uh, certain practices uh, for its own purposes and it's worked well. But I think the secret of Singapore's success in my view is its ability to change and adapt um, you know, as, 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 as circumstances change. And that's why don't see Singapore as a static community and here is where History is important. History is important. Because if you don't understand history and you sort of take a snapshot of Singapore and you say that it's like that and it's never changing, then I think you're missing, you're missing uh, the essence of Singapore. <coughs> so I'm gonna... Okay, so Ayong, I think you have raised more questions than you have provided answers <laughs> to. And I think we're allowed to come back and listen to your other lectures and hope to get some answers out of you here. So on that note, I invite you to join me to thank Tayong for another lecture. Thank you, Prof Tan and Mr Kwa. Prof Tan's third lecture will take place on 30th of January next year. Details will be on our website. We hope to see you then. Um, yes, next year. Thank you for coming for this evening's lecture and have a good night.